Hey, what's up everybody? It is, and I think the audio works today. Isn't that nice? Everything's working, I think. Hi, it is the 21st of July, 2022. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 125 of the Luke Thomas live chat. Uh, it is a little bit later than usual. Typically we do these at three. I put up a note uh, on the thread for questions as well as the comment section noting that I had to do the Bellator weigh-ins. I just finished those. By the way, Douglas Lima missing weight. How about that? He obviously is not, not it's a non-title affair against Jason Jackson tomorrow night, and so he get the one-pound allowance. He still came in at 172.8. Not good. Um, so something to pay attention to for tomorrow night. We'll see. But either way, uh, let's do, let's, let's put a couple of tricks and skits and bits on this. All right. Uh, subscribe to the channel, and uh, you might be wondering where Othello is. He is on vacation. He is at La Playa, having a good time with his family. That's the beach for people who uh, do not know. He's at the beach, so he won't be here today, although he is going to put chapters in later tonight. Oh, he might show up at some point, but he's definitely going to put chapters in, so we'll have that after the fact. We can talk about Nate Diaz. We can talk about all that UFC 280 announcements. Holy, whoa, that card looks awesome. Uh, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. So I put up a thread usually the day before. Y'all fill it up. It's on the community tab at youtube.com slash Luke Thomas. You guys fill it up, and then we go from there. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for dealing with all the changes and everything else. I appreciate it. Without further ado, let's get this party started. Yay, there we go. All right, I'll turn this off as well. Now, let's pull up the questions, and we will do this. I hope everyone's having a good day today. I went to the uh, podiatrist today um, because I have, like, at the, basically what, I was wondering what was wrong. I had, uh, every time I run on my right side, on my right ankle, just where the heel meets the bottom of the foot, I have, like, a lot of pain, and, and, uh, I, I can't seem to get rid of it no matter what I do. So I went to the podiatrist and I got an x-ray. The good news is, the good news is there are no bone spurs. The bad news is um, he thinks that there is some kind of problem between the Achilles tendon and its insertion point in the bone, which is where that pain is being caused. And his solution, I did not really care for. His solution was like, you need to wear, you know, thick, stiff shoes, but like, the reason why it causes pain apparently is because there's instability there. And that right ankle I, is a sort of a preamble. And I was age 14 and I was age 21. And the, the 21 part came when I was in the military. Uh, I twisted my ankle really bad. I tore all kinds of ligaments at age 14 and then again at 21. And so if you actually, I said this before, if you actually look at my right calf and my left calf, they look slightly different in shape. Um, you don't really notice it unless you pay attention. And then when you see it, you can't kind of unsee it. And I think it's because... Uh, of all the injuries change the way my sort of my mechanics work when I walk or run anyway long story short he was like yeah you got to wear stiff shoes but like dude those stiff shoes act like they don't they, it might protect me when I run but the if the problem is a is a is a relatively weak foot or relatively weak ankle on that side by virtue of the fact that I've had this instability from the weakness I guess putting the shoes on would help when I run, but it doesn't really solve the underlying issue. And you can't really stretch it because it actually makes it worse. You have to like put it in an elevated heel, which is why they, which is why you see like Nike shoes will have an elevated heel. But the whole point about natural foot movement is to have a zero drop. So I'm gonna try and get a second opinion. Uh, I guess if the second opinion says it, then I gotta go with it. But I'm I didn't I didn't love what he said today, to be quite honest with you. I was glad I got the X-ray, but um, and I'm glad he there was no arthritis, which I was happy about. That's another little win. 
I'll take the W there, but but it's the insertion point where the, the tendon goes into the bone. That apparently is the problem. And he's like, oh, just wear s- stiff shoes uh, and that smush your, sho- your toes together. I'm like, I, I, I'm i not a doctor, but I would like to get a second opinion on that. So we'll see how. Uh, let me get, put my motherfucking glasses on so I can see. Anyway, so that was my morning. I hope yours was good. All right. Let's get this party started, shall we? Question number one, and I'll go for about an hour or so for free questions, and then, of course, if you are certainly under no obligation to put a donation in, but if you do and you put a question uh, attached to it, I'll get to that after about an hour or so. Okay. Luke, is Tom Aspinall the heavyweight with the greatest ceiling we've ever seen? Seeing how young he is currently, how little damage he seems to take, his current skill level and athleticism... I think he has all the makings of a heavyweight goat. Jesus Christ, you're calling him, you're, you're saying, well, you haven't called him a heavyweight goat, but we're sort of like, is that in play? I mean, guys, we he has a long way to go before we get to heavyweight goat. Jesus, I mean, we shouldn't even be having this conversation. But I'll answer the other one because that's a little fair. Whether or not he gets past, uh, past Bell Rung, Blades this weekend. Love the show and the lives. <laughs> I think you mean live chat. So listen. Does he have the greatest ceiling we've ever seen? We don't know. We don't know. Now, I do want to read you something because I saw this the other day and I was like, this fucking guy's numbers are off the charts. Right? Listen to his career statistics. And this is only through one, two, three, four, five UFC fights. But two of those against guys, actually, well, even Arlovsky is a good fighter still. He's a, he should be a beatable fighter for a, a next level guy. But, you know, we've seen Arlovsky put together some wins in, in, in a pretty interesting way. But then he beat Sergei Spivak first round, and then he beat Volkanov, uh, excuse me, uh, Volkov first round, and then the, the Arlovsky fight in the second round. Guy hasn't even seen the third round yet in the UFC. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Listen to his career statistics. I don't know. I have seen fighters with, I can pick individually some of the numbers I'm about to see, and they have better numbers. But I've never seen the full slate of numbers this good on any fighter. Strikes landed per minute, 7.33. High as shit. Super, super high. Most of these guys are around three and some change and four and some change. You'll even see some ranked fighters with two and some change. He's at 7.33. Strikes absorbed per minute, 2.63. That's below average. So he has a a nearly plus five differential. You got to be fucking kidding me. Super high. This is where it starts to get interesting. Striking accuracy, 65%. Two of every three finds the mark. That's high. Striking defense, 64%. Two of every three misses. That's fucking high, okay? Takedowns per 15 minutes, 4.07. High. Takedown accuracy, 100%. Takedown defense, 100%. Submission average, 2.0 2.0 per 15 minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I have, I, in all the time I've ever looked at fight metric, I've never seen the complete total slate of numbers that consistently good on both offense and defense. Never seen it that high. His numbers are fucking insane. It's shockingly high. However, and this is the big part, like obviously Volkanovski might be the very best fighter on the planet. I think you could make that argument. His numbers are not going to look as good. Now, in part, it's because, hello... He has to fight and has fought at this point much tougher opposition. He had to fight Max fucking Holloway three times. So for those reasons, and of course Jose Aldo and Brian Ortega and all these, he's had he's had to fight much tougher guys. But I will just say, 
what is the ceiling on Tom Aspinall? There's a couple of, I think, reasonable interpretations. One of them is he's going to be a champion, and I think that's a reasonable interpretation. Another one is he's obviously very, very gifted and very talented, but this is where the rubber is going to meet the road. The Curtis Blades of the world. Blades is maybe one of MMA's most underrated, overlooked, slept-on fighters, independent of weight class, anywhere. Yes, he has that bad loss to Derek Lewis, and of course, he couldn't get it done against Francis. But dude, I'm telling you, you know, if he fought Derek again, I would still pick Blades to win. Uh, I, I give Derek all the credit in the world. That was a phenomenal uppercut that he landed. Like, it was perfect, right? He got the job done. But dude, Blades is a fucking hammer, a sledgehammer. And uh, you, you, there's a video floating around of Tom Aspinall. I think he was talking to Pete C. Carroll for MMA On Point years ago detailing why Curtis Blaze was one of his favorite fighters. It was the blend of the wrestling and the striking, and he's big and he's athletic. He can certainly wrestle much better than Tom Aspinall in pure wrestling terms, probably. Um, we'll see how, how it all goes down. So I'll say this. Up to this point, he's, he's, he's one of the most impressive prospects I've ever seen. You know, uh, Up to this point, he looks to be the real deal Holyfield. But we really, I cannot stress this enough, we really, really, really won't get a sense of it until you get a fight like this. The Volkov fight and the ease of it was definitely informative, no doubt about it. Um, but it, the way the way in which he sort of really targeted that particular weakness of Volkov was both smart and also, I won't call it not illuminating, but it wasn't as... Um, it's just not going to tell you as much as a win over Blades might. It's just not, you know, especially if the fight goes into like, like, for example, what does Aspinall's cardio look like in the third and fourth round if he's had to wrestle the first two or three? Doesn't matter what he did in the regional scene. That's not going to count when you're fighting Curtis Blades, right? We don't, we don't really know. Um, you know, how does he deal with being cut over the eye? Does it rattle him? How does he deal with losing the first two rounds? Does it rattle him? Like, there's all kinds of questions that are significantly important that we just don't have a really good answer for up to this point. But, I mean, I showed you his numbers. They're insane. They're insane. So, my personal belief is I don't know what's going to happen on Saturday. I probably Aspinall's going to win. But I think if you're even saying that, you're taking a bit of a leap of faith. Because the other part is, look, even though he's got these wins... First round, 45 seconds. First round, a minute and 35. Second round at 109. So you got about six minutes and some change. Then you got two and a half minutes, one round. Three minutes and 45 seconds in one round. This is hardly any time. This is hardly, what I mean by that is, there's, for Volkanovsky, another example, he's got, you know, three five round fights against Holloway. That's just, you know, so much data upon which to get a clear sense of his game. So it's not just that he beat Max three times, certainly the last one without any controversy. It's it's also that you have a wide array of tape to take a look at. You just don't have that with Tom Aspinall at this level. And so, you know, it's hard to know exactly where he's at. But I'm telling you, like, what he has put in so far has been outrageously, outrageously impressive. Someone's asking about the assignment of the red and blue. I did mean to look into that. You know what? Let me make a note about that right now because that is not good of me that I should have looked into it and did not because I forgot. So let me make a note of it right now. Let me do that. Here we go. Red and blue card. Okay. I will come back to that. I'm sorry. Oh, 
I did have something I wanted to tell you very, very quickly, if I may, uh, here. So last week, someone asked me about the Northman and why I didn't like it. And I gave an answer that I was like, it was beautifully shot. It was beautifully edited. The cinematography was incredible. It was well acted. You know, the audio, the sound and uh, editing and engineering was, it's a really well-made movie, but I was just sort of off put by how sort of gratuitously violent and uh, what I thought was the magnification of that. And it turns out that it's the exact opposite. In fact, someone wrote me, I won't give his name because I don't know if he wants me to give it, uh, but I really, really appreciated this. And let me see if I can find it here very quickly. The whole point is apparently the guy was looking to do the opposite. Yes, a, a gentleman, I won't give his last name. His name is Christopher. He wrote me, and what he says is this guy who directed it, Robert Eggers is his name, the whole point was to actually show that there is... Let me read you something that he wrote. He goes, um, Eggers attempts to say, quote, Look, look at the horrors of our ancestors driven by supernatural beliefs and a twisted commitment to honor culture. A man, the protagonist in this case, will butcher, burn, and destroy everything in his life. He will literally kill his own mother in the name of it. And then he goes on to say, This isn't like Arnold storming an island of uh, people and blowing them up with rocket launchers, a sequence that was intended to bring glee and cheers from its predominantly waspy target audience. The Northman is about showing you the grim truth of violence, that it's ugly, off-putting, and not all that fun. If you experienced any of these emotions while witnessing many of the grotesque scenes in The Northman, that's because Eggers intended for you to not like it. He wants you to detest the violence. What a, I, I'm, I am uh, ashamed it did not occur to me more to realize that the reason why I had a view where I, I the one that I had, was because I saw a lot of bros <laughs> on uh, social media and some other places being like, oh, bro, that movie was awesome. It's super violent and the scenes are great and da 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 And I'm like, okay, it'll be like one of those kinds of movies and, you know, sort of like kind of like The Rock-ish, but a little bit more violent in the action movie style. And then I watched it. I was like, Jesus, this is not that at all. I'm like, how could people fall in love with this? I, I, I thought that the director was trying to send the opposite message by virtue of what other people were saying in a positive way about it. And of course, there is a positive message or a positive way to interpret it. This way, I think, is the right way to interpret it. I was using what other people were saying as like the backdrop of my understanding. Then I watched it against that. And it tripped me up. I got the wrong impression of it. So I really appreciate the clarification from Christopher. I really appreciate that he had such a, a, a helpful take. And if you ever want to send me something where you think I'm wrong or you've got something to add or just want to reach out to me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. So to point that out, I do read the emails. I'm trying to be better about answering them more quickly. I don't always do that as often as I should, but I am trying to be better about it. And I really, 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 really appreciated that from uh, Christopher. So thank you, Christopher. That was very, very helpful. Now, back to this. Luke, how hungover were you the morning after the margarita binge <laughs> at the live show? Also, what's your go-to hangover meal? I don't get hangovers hardly at all anymore by, by virtue of the fact that I hardly ever drink. I will tell you, you're, this, you're not going to believe this, but BC will corroborate this. I encourage you to ask him. I was fine the next day. Here's the thing. I had enough margaritas to be right at the edge. Right at the edge. And I know you're probably like, oh, you went over the edge. Because I was trying to put on a show and I was nervous based on all the tech difficulties we were having and I was I was ratcheting it up to another level. Don't get me wrong, I was definitely feeling it. I mean, to be very clear, I was feeling it. Um, but I, anybody who shook my hand afterwards can probably tell you I was not at all drunk. I, I must have spent two hours 
afterwards, you know, talking to people, shaking hands, you know, taking pics, all that kind of stuff. And any of them will corroborate that I was not at all drunk, uh, but I was right at the limit. In other words, if I had stayed drinking, if I had kept drinking past that point, then yes, it would have put me over the top. In fact, after that, we had a team dinner. I didn't drink there. I had water. I ate salmon for dinner. I had more water when I got back to my hotel room and I went to bed. I was fine. I actually went for a run the next day. So I had no hangover whatsoever. I was good to go. Uh, but again, to your point, if I, had, if I had just had one or two more... It would have sent me careening over the edge. I stopped right at the moment that I had to, but I was good. As for um, for every hangover, I mean, here's the thing about being 40 that no one tells you until you get here, or certainly no one told me anyway. In your 20s, dude, like if you're 25 and you're hungover, like by the afternoon or the evening, you can like walk the whiskey off, you know. You can just like sweat it out and you're good to go. Like even by that evening, you'll be fine. Uh, 30s, it comes a little bit harder. Right. And at 40, dude, I don't know. I don't know what other people do, but for me, and again, this happens very rarely at this point, but if I get drunk, like straight up drunk, I'm hungover all day next day. Like there's nothing I can do to put that away. There's nothing I can do to get over the hump. There's nothing I can do to like, <coughs> pardon me. There's nothing I can do to like make that dissipate. I just have to eat it. And sometimes it lasts for up to two days, which is why this is the. Uh, Candidly, I love to drink. Like, I love it. The problem at this point is the cost is so heavy. It's so heavy at 42. I just can't, I can't accept it anymore. I can't, it, especially as a dad, like, just being tired as a dad makes you less of a good dad. In my, it makes me less of a good dad. I can't be as playful with my kid as I want to. I'm not as like, hey, let's go to the park uh, as energetically as I ordinarily would be. So I just can't afford to do it anymore. When I was trying to get over it, you know, the standard rule is just sort of greasy food. And, and then, you know, what I would do is I would eat like a like a really greasy meal, a burger, fries, that kind of a thing. And then I would walk it out. And then in my 20s, I would go to the gym at night and I'd be fine by bedtime. I'd be I'd be totally good to go. I'd be fine by noon in some cases, you know. Um, but that ain't the ball game at 30 at, at, uh, at 42. That ain't the ball game. So I see these guys drinking in their late 50s. I'm like, dude, how the fuck do you do that? What would the ramifications be if Nate Diaz immediately tapped once the Hamzat Chimaya fight begins to avoid taking damage? Loss on the record aside, right? Would there be legal consequences related to fight fixing, perhaps, or retaliation and punishment by the UFC? I know it doesn't seem like something Nate would do, but that would avoid him taking damage and be a sort of F you to the UFC. I think that that would do more damage to Nate's brand. Well, I mean, it's hard to say because there'd be a lot of people who would be almost in favor of this. Like, yeah, Nate, stick it to UFC. So you'd get some of that. Um, but I think he'd probably get in a little bit of trouble with the commission. Um, there's questions about, you know, your physical readiness and your overall willingness to participate in these acts to just sort of tap out immediately after that. I think that that could jeopardize his uh, his license, and if Nevada were to eventually take it or you know have a hearing about it, like well, here's one thing that doesn't really happen much anymore, but like ten years ago and even six or seven years ago, especially like during the TRT era, the, like the U UFC Fight Pass used to air commission hearings back when that shit was like really a big deal. I guess now a lot of stuff happens behind closed doors, or when Nick Diaz got hemmed up for five years for marijuana, one of the all time amazing commission blunders. Um, dude, they would rake him over the coals for that, and they would potentially suspend him, and it would affect his ability to, 
to get a fight in California or Nevada or sign with anyone. Well, he could sign or whatever, but it, it could affect his licensing. And I suspect that he would not want to risk that. Um, if you're going to take the fight, then you just take the fight, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, Luke, in the situation of a perfectly checked calf kick, could you explain what it's like for each guy and what kind of... Yeah, this one's only got one like. Let me. I'm trying to get to the ones that got a little bit more. All right, here's another one. What is your best guess on when the size of an elite fighter could get outmatched by a significantly larger man? So, for example, Tom Wilson is a hockey enforcer, six foot four, two hundred and fifteen pounds. If you were to put Wilson in the octagon with just a traditional fight camp, give me a few of the lightest fighters you could see outmatching Wilson's size and strength, based purely on skill. Uh, just about any welterweight for sure. Uh, because those welterweights walk around at 200 pounds. They're going to rehydrate up to like 190. Now, I, this wouldn't happen because you would have to have the weights within a, a singular weight class, so the situation I'm positing wouldn't really work. Um, you could potentially see one as, uh, you know, obviously Tom Wilson, you know, is a, is a big fuck and he's strong. Um, but certainly a welterweight, a, a good welterweight would give him would fuck him up and I would say it's possible it's possible even a big lightweight like I know these lightweights who get up to like 190 um they could potentially do it as well now that's that's maybe a bit too far but like they wouldn't manhandle him but like if Justin Gaethje who could fight let's say again what weight they're fighting at is relevant here um but you know Justin Gaethje's leg kicks would would destroy him fast like very quickly there would it wouldn't be very much of them and i'm assuming that he'd be able to get out of the way of most of the punches i'm assuming that a strong wrestler type could could have some success so for sure like a strong 170 or like um obviously usman i think would tear him limb from limb but uh may, may, maybe maybe even a 155er is possible that's probably a reach again would he have to weigh in at 155, or could he blow up to his normal walking around weight? That's sort of the question I'm trying to answer here, but it'd be something like that. What do you make of the recent trend of fighters like Holloway, Whitaker, and Covington being stuck in Rich Franklin territory? It seems like there's never been this many fighters at the same time considered the definitive second-best fighters in their divisions. Is this merely a coincidence, or... Will this become an even more common occurrence in MMA? So the question you have to ask is, will there be commonly a scenario where some fighter is head and shoulders above the rest of the division, leaving even very, very good fighters stuck in limbo? I mean, we've seen it enough where it's certainly not um, far from unheard of. Um, what would explain it... Um, I just, I don't know if there's something systemic in that way. I'm trying to noodle what it would be, and we're seeing it more and more. I mean, partly, you know, in the time of Rich Franklin was competing, there weren't as many divisions. Um, so there's more divisions now. So there's at least some, although mostly at the lighter end, less obviously at the higher end, or really no change at all at the higher end. Um, although there used to be not 155, and they brought 155 back. But, um, so, yeah, in the Holloway case, it's a lighter weight division, obviously, in Whitaker at 185 and Covington at 170. Um, I, I don't know if there's anything systemic. It just appears to be the case that 
on occasion, you get, and then I mean, Demetrius Johnson at 125. Yeah, so partly it's the expansion of weight class is one. And I think the other one is just, I don't, I don't know if there's anything special happening in a way that would create them other than to say there are very, very special talents that happen every so often that um, their peers have a very difficulty in, in, in beating. What's kind of funny is, well, I guess, you know, John Jones would be the case, although when he leaves, you get all this parody. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there's anything. Um, I don't think it's a recent trend. I mean, you're, you're referencing Rich Franklin. He's the famous case, but there have been some other ones as well. Um, I, I wonder that through the maturation of divisions, let me, see, let me see if I can noodle this through in real time. So lightweight used to have a little bit of that, although BJ Penn reigned for a little while at the top. Um, but I guess what I would say is, as these as the game matures and as these divisions mature, there appear to be like these transcendent guys who are able to to maximally use. You know what? I have to think about it. I have to think about it. I don't have a good answer for you. Rather than give you some bullshit answer on the fly, I'd have to think about that one. I'm gonna I'm gonna heart that one. That's a good question. Look, it seems Nate's exit plan is a big money fight with Jake Paul. With that said, what do you think happens if Jake loses to Rockman? Would Jake still be the move for Nate after an L, or could you see him trying MMA free agency, Bellator, PFC? I don't see any fucking way on earth he goes to Bellator, PFC, or uh, PFL, excuse me. Um, I would be shocked. I mean, maybe Bellator, if he could like box, and then Bellator does like pay-per-view, and you're like, oh, well, PFL has pay-per-view. Like, dude, Nate ain't going over the PFL. That ain't happening. Um, and I don't know how many big fights Nate has left anyway, right? 36, 37 years old. Probably doesn't have a lot. Um, I have talked to people close to Nate, and they don't, whenever I bring up Jake Paul, they don't say anything. I think it's in part because, you know, the UFC is, or at least I, I know for a time, the UFC was waiting for Nate to say anything about Jake Paul as a way to potentially get him in contract trouble by... I'm not sure exactly what provision, but perhaps um, that he was negotiating with someone else while he was under contract. Like they, I know there was a while there where, and even um, even even Jake Paul's people are very very coy about it as well. Jake Paul will answer about it in the media, but like I can tell you that the people around Jake and the people around Nate are very careful to not mention the other one. Um, and a potential fight between them at all, even in any kind of theoretical sense, by virtue of, uh, I think, feeling that they could get in trouble with the existing UFC contract and getting trouble with, in trouble with UFC. So they don't really say anything. To answer your question, I have thought a lot about this. I got to tell you, folks, I don't know about this Jake Paul, uh, Hasim Rahman Jr. fight. Like, there appears to be just this inertia about Jake Paul and his chances that I don't think fully fully holds up to scrutiny. I made this point on the air on MK, but I, I want to make it here again because it's like, what is the challenge to this? Well, you're not who you are on paper in totality. Okay, fair enough. But if I didn't know who Jake Paul was and I didn't know who Hasim Rahman was and I just called Jake Paul Fighter X and I just called Hasim Rahman Jr. Fighter Y. And so I told you Fighter X is 5-0. and This will be a sixth fight and here's who he's beaten. He beat a guy from YouTube. He beat uh, Nate Robinson 
who was not a boxer, barely an athlete by the time they fought. I mean, obviously in his heyday, he was a great athlete, but you know, at this age and stage, what is he? And then he had uh, the Ben Askren fight. Ben had come off of a hip replacement, you know, had never boxed, and what the fuck was that? And then he beat Tyron Woodley twice. Now, Tyron Woodley, of course, is a good athlete, but he left the UFC after a terrible losing streak, and I think, you know, it's fair to say that he was very much post-prime. And then he heads into this one, right? Those, those are the guys he's beaten. If you look at who Asim Rahman has fought, it's not necessarily all the most interesting guys in the world either, but he's 12-1, and one, and he's got, relatively speaking, significant amateur experience. And in his last fight, I think, what was it, 220? Has fought as high as, like, 260, 270? So if I just told you that's what X fighter is and that's what Y fighter is, who would you pick? Well, anyone with ed- any degree of rationality would pick Y fighter, in this case, Asim Rahman, right? So then what is the argument for Jake Paul? It's like, well, okay, well, you're not fully who you are on paper, Hasim Rahman Jr. looked bad in his last fight, which was that loss um, to Mackenzie Morrison. And, okay, that's bad. And, you know, his dad has aired him out for a lot of, like, lack of training issues. And, you know, he's, he's, had, a, he's had a fair amount of issues in his life. Okay, fair enough. Like, all that matters. And he'll, he's going to be depleted for this, so he has to get down to 200. But, like, here's the reality. Like, what happens if Hasim Rahman Jr. misses weight? Are they going to call the fight off? Like, they had to put up a shitload of money to get that date at MSG on August 6th. That's why they didn't want to lose it. Right? You're just going to give that away because the guy missed weight? Like, there is a real possibility where uh, Rockman Jr. doesn't make weight, the fight goes on ahead, and then he dusts Jake Paul. <laughs> and now you have controversy because it's like, well, he didn't make weight, but it was last notice, and then this whole thing. Like, there's, it's, there's a lot of ways where this blows up in his face. And, dude... Uh, Jake Paul's own manager, uh, Nikisa, said publicly, and this is no private conversation, I haven't talked to him or anything, but publicly told Mark Ramundi of ESPN that they advised him against doing this. Now, I heard the Chris Mannix podcast, and he was talking about various fighters, so he was like, pick anybody who was, you know, a good fighter back in their day, who did they fight in their sixth pro fight? So Sergio Mora, in his sixth pro fight, fought Warren Kronberger, who I think, you know, had a losing record at the time and, you know, turned out to be, let me go on box rec at the time. I'm not sure what he was. Um, how about, let's see, who did, you know, someone relatively recently, who did Abner Mares fight in his sixth fight, right? Who did Abner Mares fight in his sixth fight? He fought, let's see, in his sixth fight, he fought Celso Bosquez. Let's see Celso Bosquez. What does box rec say about Celso Bosquez? They say Celso Bosquez is, yeah, I mean, the guy has a record of three and three. And by the time he fought Mares, he was uh, 0-1. No, sorry. He was, yeah, I think 2-2. Two and two, Or that made him 2-2. Two and two. Uh, Sorry, he was 3-0 and oh when he fought Mares, and then he lost three straight. So... He ended up three and three. Like these are hardly decorated guys. And and by the way, let me see that guy Warren. Who's the other guy? Warren Cronenberg or whatever the fuck his name was. Let's see the guy Sergio Mora fought. So Sergio Mora fought Warren Cronenberger. Uh, what does Box Rec say about that gentleman? Let's see. So Warren Cronenberger, whose nickname is War Dog, <laughs> had or has a record of he hasn't fought in forever. Has a record of uh, 
four and ten. Four and ten. Excuse me. Oh, uh, yeah, four and ten. Nine of those by KO, by the way. And when he fought uh, Sergio Mora, he was, let's see, 1-0-2-0-3-0-4-0-5-0-6-0-6-1-7-1-6-7-2. He was 7-2 when he fought Mora. And then he just ended up losing a bunch more. No, it doesn't make sense. He only has four wins. What am I saying? So he has, let's see. Here we go. One, two, three, four. Yeah, he was, let's see. He was, he had four wins. All four, I think. No, sorry, he had three wins. I can't read box rec correctly. He had three wins. You know, these guys, the point being is these guys in their sixth fight, even for the very best ones, you're not fighting someone this good. So this is the point. It's like, dude, for a sixth fight, Jake Paul should almost be fighting the Tommy Furies of the world in terms of what is appropriate, what is um, uh, the, the right next step for that level. You're not supposed to start fighting. I know you got your, your guys like who have the you know, crazy amateur experience like Lomachenko. You know, they're fighting for world titles almost right away. That's not the real way it works. The real way it works is, you know, you're not fighting guys who are very good until you're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 fights in, and then you begin to turn it up a little bit. And, of course, you're, you know, when you're that young, you're also fighting a lot. I think Sergio Mora fought four times in 2002, something along those lines. You know, in 2004, he fought one, two, three, four, five times. You know, so you're on the regional scene. You're taking fights pretty actively. Dude, to fight a 12-in-1 guy, even as flawed as Hasim Rahman Jr. is, that's a huge risk. A huge risk. I'll just tell you right now, we'll see what happens at the weigh-in. We'll see what other news happens. But as it stands today, I'm picking Hasim Rockman Jr. to win. Maybe that's crazy. I don't know. But, like, dude, the second fight with Woodley, um, it was a tremendous knockout. It was a tremendous knockout, not just because it was a big punch. It was a big punch because of the way he set it up, faked low and went high. I give him credit. It's a nice shot. He obviously can thump a little bit. Like, I give it to him. That, that's good. But the, the fight before that... Like, every round preceding that one was not good. Like, that fight was headed towards a little bit of disaster territory. The, 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 the audience was booing considerably. So it just makes you wonder a little bit here, like, you know, they wanted to keep that date. They want to have an opponent that's got a bit of a name. Obviously, they know something about him from sparring and whatnot. And to be clear, to be very clear, Hasim Rahman Jr. is a flawed fighter. Like, there are plenty, plenty of criticisms to make of a guy like that. But at the same time, for your sixth fight against a guy who's got that kind of experience, who is a legitimate pro fighter, dude, that's a tremendous risk. Tremendous. I'll tell you what, if he beats him, I will be very impressed. I will be very impressed. I've not been... I was impressed by that the shot he landed on Woodley. But, you know, he is who he is. He's four, five, five, ten. Like, you're not going to be very good at that point. Plus, he's get taken to boxing later in life. Dude, you beat a guy like this for all his faults. You beat a guy like at this at this stage, that's big. That's big. Um, so, what do I think happens? Well, all right, let's game this out. What if Rockman Jr. knocks him out? And what if Nate just takes a tremendous beating one way or the other? What happens? I think it'd be foolish to think that even with that, those two couldn't get together for a fight and sell a ton of pay-per-view buys. Now, how many? It's hard to say. But it would probably be big still. Um, but I do think that if they go in there and Jake gets splattered and 
Nate loses real badly, um, it will damage their stock a little bit. It's why, you know, Jake is accepting this risk, but it's partly why UFC is doing what they're doing. And, of course, Nate has accepted that risk in a manner of speaking um, as well. But, yeah, I do think it will affect their stock. And also the other part, too, is, you know, what does it do to them psychologically? Like, Nate is as tough as they come, but at 37, if you take a real bad beating, like, are you going to be the same after that? Folks would just assume, well, he'll just be the same. He might be. He's certainly as tough as anyone else I've ever seen in my life. But the idea that that's an obvious thing that you're obviously going to get over, I think, is a little premature. And same for Jake. Like, what if Jake gets viciously KO'd? You may not think it's likely, but let's say it happens. What does that do to his confidence? What does that do to his stock? What does that do to his willingness to overcome all that? Dude, these are huge questions. So I'm not so worried that if both lose, it necessarily impacts their ability to make a big fight and make a lot of money. I think that is still on the table. But what does it do to them as people and as competitors, I think, is very much up in the air. Uh, Luke, uh, let's see. This guy's from Essex, England. Uh, I'm going to take you back to UFC 167 because it was the first UFC event I ever attended at the MGM in Las Vegas. Headline was Hendricks versus GSP. In the build-up to that fight, there were a lot of claims made by Hendricks that GSP was taking PEDs. Yet Hendricks' rapid decline since USADA testing is dramatic in that he lost the touch of death and the ability to make weight. Is it fair to assume he was on some kind of performance enhancers in that day, or do you think old father time just caught up with him? I've said this before. If you, if you want to believe that USADA got him, I think there's plenty of evidence to at least make some rational assumptions about that. The only thing I always caution people about that is not to talk him out of it. I don't. But, but, I do also think that one thing that is overlooked about Hendricks is the amount of damage he did to his body from weight cutting. I do think, because remember, he weight cutted from, what, age four? I don't know if he was cutting weight at four, but he was wrestling since age four and had been cutting weight, especially during, like, the dark ages of weight cutting when they were just, you know, man up, lose more weight, you know, rather than having any kind of rational approach to it. He did it all through some parts of middle school, high school, college, pros, you know, late 20s, early 30s. That's so much weight cutting on your body. And I think it really, really fucked him up too. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've interviewed Chris Lieben talking about weight cutting. And he is on, folks, I don't know if they know this, he's on hormone drugs the rest of his life um, because his, uh, his endocrine system got completely fucked and doesn't really work properly anymore by virtue of the weight cutting. So, you know, everyone wants to make it just about USADA. I have... I would in no way be surprised if that was, in fact, maybe even the, 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 the dominant factor. However, however, you can't lose sight of the fact that weight cutting destroyed him. Destroyed him. Luke, why is stamina basically something you either have or don't have in MMA and generally not something you can drastically improve, i.e. McGregor? I could never imagine uh, saying about a soccer player he's great but he gasses after 60 minutes because you're not going to make it to the very top of the soccer ranks if you have a bad gas tank. They get weeded out before that. I talk about this all the time. It's the same with having a bad chin in MMA. You guys have heard me say this. There, there, I've seen it. There are very good fighters with good defense, good tactical understanding, high fight IQ, strong, good athleticism, great gas tanks, and they don't have a chin, and there's not much in the way they can do to improve it. You can do some neck, neck, neck exercises. You can work on your defense, really. But in MMA, the variability of 
of what happens to you in terms of offense is so high, it's really hard to solve for that. And so if you just don't have naturally the ability to take a shot, yes, you, there are some things you can do, but it's going to – it's gonna those guys get weeded out by and large before they ever get to the UFC. So you just sort of assume, you know, this is what a human looks like in terms of tolerating damage. No, that's what those humans look like in terms of tolerating damage. Conversely, if you're playing at a high level, a professional, you know, tier one kind of world um, – you know, you should have built up the capacity for it for a long time, but the guys who can't, they get weeded out. Now, how much is actually how much is actually changeable is a better question for um, somebody who has a better understanding of exercise science. There obviously is a lot that can be improved. Who knows about what kind of training they're actually doing to meaningfully improve gas tank versus what they're saying they're doing or what they believe that they're doing. Uh, but um, it can be improved. You know, people have you've seen that, but also it's like it's like anything else. It's like what is your genetic potential for your cardiovascular fitness? It's probably a lot higher than, you know, what you currently have for many of you. Maybe for some of you, maybe it's not. But um, a lot of this is sort of genetically predetermined. I mean, dude, this is what I mean about sports. It's like, oh, we got to make it fair. Motherfucker, ain't a thing fair about sports. You know, yes, it's important to have rules to standardize things. It's important to have... Um, best practices it's important to for these things to be policed for safety and for health and to the best extent and what those mean of course it all means that but it's like dude like what is fair about being born with incredible genetic gifts what is fair about being born with x number of different things that you just lucked into for that particular field like nothing there's nothing fair about it it's the opposite of fairness it's the it's the rewarding of the exceptional that's what sports is all about it's rewarding the exceptional nothing there's nothing egalitarian about it. It's the exact fucking opposite. Uh, so what, are, what, in your opinion, are the biggest factors in an MMA fight being considered great? Uh, for example, like momentum shift, skill level, a fight's importance. Yeah, so stakes is usually a big one. What are they fighting for? Legacy, belt, right? All those kinds of things. Um... That's one. Second, I would say, is um, duration to a degree. It doesn't have to be super long, but the best one, you know, you can get like your daily versus, like daily versus Diaz or Diaz versus daily, whatever it was for Strike Force. That's about as short as a great fight can be, right? It's about as short as a great fight can be. Um, but there's different kinds of great fights. You can get, if you guys have never seen it, go check out the original Cyborg. Santos or Evangelista Cyborg Santos. That's who Cyborg was originally married to back in the day. Um, Chris Cyborg. Uh, and his fight with Melvin Manhoof in one of the original UK uh, promotions called Cage Rage. If you haven't seen it, it's maybe the best MMA brawl ever. It's just absolutely fucking madness for as long as it lasts. I wouldn't put that as one of the best fights ever, but that kind of brawl holds a certain degree of significance. So there's momentum shift. The willingness to top, the ability to fight through difficulty is another one. Um, skill level shown, um, again, stakes, uh, to some extent duration, right? All the things that make, I mean, just think about it. What are the things that make a fight challenging? And then it's usually when both competitors have to answer for it in different ways, right? So when you begin to add up all the, all the, all of the obstacles, all of the hurdles that they have to overcome, and then one can inflict it on the other, and for me, when there's usually a little bit of science applied to it, it's not so crazy, although parts of it can be. Sometimes it can just be reduced to that and there's nothing you can do about it. Then 
that those to me are the factors that typically make a fight great. But I usually lead with stakes because you can have an amazing fight on the prelim card, uh, but um, they're not fighting for the same things. Funny question. Do you think you gravitated towards BC as your co-host? Because just like the male figures in your family, he's smart and perfectly capable, but also <laughs> denies you the physical affection you crave. No, I would not say that that is the reason. Well, that's a very funny question. Uh, to answer it more, more forthrightly, it is because he is, uh, he is the opposite of me in many ways. But in many ways, he's not, right? We both took very different journeys to arrive at pretty similar positions and he has a very different outlook. He brings a very different kind of sensibility to the show. Um, and so it, you get both. That's the whole idea. It's sweet and sour. It's peanut butter and jelly, whatever the metaphor you want to pick. That's why. And also because it also fit what we were looking for with Showtime where um, I'm a little more of an MMA guy, although he's a lot. Of, he's very much an MMA guy these days. Um, he's a lot more of a boxing guy than I am, but there's, a, there's an MMA and boxing combo that happens there that sort of uniquely fits what everyone was looking for. So it just made sense in a lot of different ways. Have you ever talked to a coach that has expressed a lot of doubt about their fighter's upcoming fight? <clears throat> I have a phlegm in my nose. Sorry, in the back of my throat anyway. I'd assume they'd be off the record telling you this, yes. But have you ever encountered a coach being honest and saying they think their fighter is not looking good in camp and or has a tough matchup and is going to lose or maybe even get worked ahead of time? All the time. All the time. <laughs> it happens regularly. Now, not so much going to get worked or my guy is going to lose, but like expressing doubt all the time. All the time. Um, and, you know, like you might, you might ask, well, then why would they go through with it? Well... I've had times where they expressed doubt and their guy won. I've had times where they expressed doubt and I think they still saw it as their obligation to support someone. Or, you know, they felt like they had a job to do and they're going to do their job the best they can and let the chips fall where they may. They kind of had an inclination, but that's not about what their job is. Their job is to... And, and, you know, these are not cases where someone was going to get the shit kicked out of them. These are situations that might have been difficult, but at least victory was conceivable. I don't think I've ever talked to someone where they're like, oh, my guy's going to get absolutely fucking munished. I don't think I've ever done that. But, you know, I've not talked to guys who are really in that position either, you know. Um, and most of those guys who put their fighters in those positions are in denial anyway. Not all of them, but many of them. But yes, do coaches express doubt about what could happen all the time? Coaches are like, uh, they can be like, you get like a Saif Saud who's like very focused and intense. But what I mean is, a lot of coaches are like fighters, and many of them were fighters. Most of them were fighters in some capacity or the other. But they're, they're just a lot more rational. They're a lot less tightly wound. They're a lot more understanding of the reality of things. That's why I have a better conversation with them because, you know, I've had fighters where you interview them and it's like, you know, well, if you win on Saturday and blah, 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 and then they'll stop you and be like, no, 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 when I win. It's like, dude, what the fuck you want me to do with that? You know what I mean? Like, I understand that you have to think that and I can't even say that that's wrong. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not Miss Cleo. I can't predict the future, but you can't, you can't dictate to me that like, I can't even say if. It's unfucking known We don't know what the future is. And so, you know, I, when fighters are like that tightly wound, 
which they might need to be for competitive purposes. I, I understand it. I get it. But I'm trying to have a conversation about reality, not the conversation of the mental place you need to be in to win. That's not where I want to be. Coaches are almost always there. They're almost always there. So they're going to tell you the good part about their guy. They're going to believe in their guy. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to acknowledge, you know, um, they're going, what the fuck? Oh, they're going to acknowledge, you know, the good parts too. But like, do they rationally understand that it might be an uphill climb and that if certain things don't happen in the right way, it won't work for them all the time, all the time, all the time. It happens all the time. Hello, Luke. The description of Ortega on Monday's show made me think that Paul Craig is the Scotch Ortega. Despite his recent successes against some dangerous and highly thought of opponents, he doesn't get much love in the media. What's missing for him or what do you think he needs to do to make him be considered a more serious contender? Well, in part, Ortega had you know a certain look. He had the backing from Henner Gracie and like those guys over there. And, you know, he had... Um, listen, the fans kind of gravitate to certain people and to others they don't. Obviously, he's American, so it helped with attracting the largest audience versus being, you know, scotch and that not necessarily enabling you in that way. Also, like, you know, they're not quite the same. Like, please don't misunderstand me. Dude, Paul Craig is a gem. I mean, we are so lucky to have a fighter like him, especially at 205. I can't wait for Saturday. I really hope he does the thing that you know he, he he always wants to do, but a little bit more of his game involves um, trickery, um, uh, deception, and a willingness to put himself in really bad spots for like a low percentage. Although he he seems to make it work more often than not, kind of attack. That's not quite Ortega. Ortega is a little bit different. Ortega is willing to walk through hell to find when you have made an error and then... I mean, yes, in that sense, I guess they are the same, but they're not... There's a certain kind of way in which Paul Craig almost tried... He like... How do I say this? Paul Craig, I think, from what I've seen... It's not that he's not willing to go through difficult circumstances. It's almost like he's like, let's 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 get rid of the pretenses about what this fight is going to be, other than this, right? It's just going to be me. I'm going to pull guard, and I'm going to you know I'm going to pretend I'm getting hurt, and I'm going to go for that. Ortega doesn't do that. Ortega actually tries to forthrightly like beat you on the feet, and by the way, and did against Korean Zombie. So like, there's a certain well-roundedness issue I think that that gives Ortega a little bit more of a of a difference in that regard. And then his jujitsu is very opportunistic. Now. It's opportunistic in a slightly different way. It's not opportunistic like I'm inviting you into a trap. It's you have done some kind of error. And by the way, all different kinds of circumstances, Paul Craig's usually involve guard. Now, some of them involve guard, hence T-City, Triangle City, but not always. Like he can jump guillotine or he can find the back. It's, it's, a, it's a more well-rounded idea of when mistakes occur. And often, the similarity is that these guys get comfortable in both cases but they approach it in slightly different ways. There's a there's a lack of pretense. There's a real there's a for Paul Craig, there's just a real effort at um again from what I have seen from I'm going to move to guard. 
I'm going to pretend to be hurt. And then when you get comfortable, I'm going to go after you. Ortega was like, let's fight it out in the feet and see what goes there. And then if something else goes wrong, I'll just snatch a, I'll snatch your neck or I'll find the back. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's Ortega tries to fight the way, you know, a normal approach would look. I think Paul Craig has a very abnormal approach in that way. They might sort of arrive in relatively similar positions, but there's an abnormality in approach with one, and there's a sort of a conventionality in approach with the other, and then these inspired moments of unconventionality with Ortega. So they're slightly different in that way. Luke, hope you're doing well. I am. Uh, my question for you is, what do you think Henry Cejudo could do to Volkanovski if that fight were to happen? Not much. Not much. In a recent interview, Triple C has mentioned repeatedly that he thinks with a, quote, good game plan, end quote, he could be the one to dethrone Volkanovski. What tactically do you think Henry could focus on to get that win and take the featherweight crown? Thank you for your time. I have no fucking idea. I have no idea. Now, I mean, this, you know, whenever these questions come up and I have this kind of denial about it, it sounds like I'm bashing Henry Cejudo. Dude, nothing would make me happier than Henry Cejudo coming back to MMA and taking a fight and, like, Picking up where he left off. Nothing would make me happier. I was sad when he retired. You know, I, I was like, oh, what a bummer, you know? Like, this guy was just getting cooking, and then he called it a day. And I understand for his reasons and, and everything else, I was, but I was disheartened by it because he really turned out to be something special. For folks who may not remember, there were a lot of concerns about Henry going from wrestling to MMA and whether or not he was going to be a bit of a flake. Missing weight, not, like, being the guy he needed to be and stuff like that. And he eventually figured it out and put all that put all that to the side. But folks in the wrestling community were like, is he really going to be something? And they turned out to be incre incredibly special, which we are all lucky for. Like, dude, I am so glad he has turned out to be the coach he's been. I, I really hope he comes back and gets some tough bantamweight fights. And dude, if he goes back and captures that bantamweight title, you got to be shitting me, man. Be, uh, it would be unbelievable. It'd be, uh, it'd be amazing. And I will say, if he can recapture the bantamweight title, well, then we can revisit a conversation about Volkanovski. But right now, that seems to me ludicrous. Not even remotely interested in it. Volkanovski is strong even for 155ers, I believe. I mean, I don't, I can't prove that, but he is. The 145ers can't do fuck all to him. They can't manhandle him. They don't. They don't. They, 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 what, what 145er is going to put hands on him and like muscle him around? It's not going to happen. Like maybe Josh Emmett could do it, and even then, I don't think Josh Emmett could do it. Like they're not going to do that. So what is Henry Cejudo going to do physically? He obviously was going to have, be a very good wrestler, but like Volkanovski's defensive sensibilities there about entries, exits, where to turn, where to step, weight balance, all of that is phenomenal. Plus the physicality he brings at 145. I, I just, I don't even know what the argument would be there. Now, of course, Henry can do a lot more than just wrestle. He can strike on the inside. He can strike on the outside. I suppose that'd be interesting to see. But even then, Volkanovski, he has a style for everybody. He has a style for everybody. I, 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 to me, this is the least interesting fight that you could make for Henry Cejudo right now. I realize that it grabs headlines and it'd be like, wow, what would it mean if he got the 145 title? It'd be outrageously impressive. That might be the most impressive thing I've ever seen in MMA if he does that. And, and again, he might get to a position where he could earn that. But right now, it seems crazy to me. It's, you know, I'm not going to put it on the same level as like Diaz versus Ngannou or something like that. But, um, I think the most interesting fights are Henry Cejudo versus Jan. Henry Cejudo versus, we'll see what happens with Sean O'Malley. Henry Cejudo versus Dillashaw. Henry Cejudo versus Aljamain Sterling. Dude, those are tough fights for him. And he might be able to win them all. 
but they're tough fights. I would love to see Cejudo back at bantamweight. Love. I would love to see what he can do there. But until he can reclaim the number one position there, any conversation about what he's going to do to Volkanovski seems to me a waste of time. Um, I, Volkanovski has a longer reach. I think his ability to make people make mistakes, his ability to freeze them, his ability to... like He's got maybe the smartest coaches in all of MMA, and he's got, relative to Henry, significant physical advantages. You know, I, 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 again, dude, you can't have more respect for a guy who won an Olympic fucking gold medal at what, age 18 or 19, and then won two UFC weight class titles. An unbelievable fighter. An unbelievable competitor. But there are limits to all of this. He is, no one is. He is not Superman. Nobody is. And until we can show that, you know, the wins that he has from Bantamweight, while impressive, do these other guys, these Yans, these Sterlings, these Sandhagens, these, you know, you name it, Dillashaws, at 135 anyway, it's a different animal. So let's see what he does there first. If he does really well there, happy to revisit the conversation. Uh, greetings, Vape Lord. Where's my vape? Greetings, Vape Lord. Do you think that the UFC stacking UFC 280 is a direct result of Nate being on 279? They already know that one can sell on name value alone, and they could be making it a rough card because of the animosity with Nate. Similar situation to what happened with 270 with Francis. Yeah, of course. Why would you put... I mean, I don't know if Nate wants to even fly to Abu Dhabi, but like, why would you put all those guys together? Part of the... Like, when we say UFC 280 is stacked, let's be very clear about what we mean. Who on the UFC 280 card is a known pay-per-view draw. I saw people bagging on Izzy, being like, oh, UFC 276 didn't sell over 400K. Show me the pay-per-view this year that did. My understanding is none of them have. None of them have. So all the headliners up to this point can't do it. You can throw Izzy on that list, but he is hardly alone. So is Islam Makachev a proven pay-per-view draw? Nope. Is Charles Oliveira? Obviously, we love him, but he's not a proven pay-per-view draw. Sterling, no. Dillashaw, he can draw a little bit, but above 500K, no. 400K, I mean, I don't think he can do that. Uh, at least not without some help along the card. Uh, he is a draw. He is a draw, but not to that level. So in that sense, no. So you, those are your two title fights. Then you've got O'Malley. He is certainly very popular, but it's not... I mean, he was on that 276 card, and it didn't sell over 400. So in that sense, no. Jan, no. Bilal Muhammad, no. Brady, no. Dariush, no. Gamrot, no. So what you've done is you've got a card with an outrageous amount of quality. And you've got some guys that are legitimately popular. And you've got some guys that have done reasonably well on pay-per-view. You're putting them all together. When we say it's stacked, that's not necessarily the same thing as saying this will do well on pay-per-view. Now, I think it will do reasonably well given the the amalgamation of it all. But there are no proven major draws on pay-per-view on that card. They're not there. So they're putting them all together to give themselves the best shot. And I think doing a decent pay-per-view buy rate, and I think it will in the end. 
what the reason why it is stacked is because it is the glamour division, the very best division, and then massively consequential contender fights with some of the most exciting up and coming talent in the division against some of the guys who are, you know, right on the cusp of title shots themselves, who are a little bit more experienced and 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 established in their respective divisions. Your Muhammad's, your Dariushes, for example, things like that, and Jan coming off of the title fight, right? That's that's the reason why it's stacked, but stacked as a function of quality and, you know, uh, whether it has significant pay-per-view generating uh, capability, these are two separate questions, at least in my mind as it relates to UFC 280. I'm going to cut it short because I have a meeting at 5, so let's get to the paid questions here if we can very quickly. Oh, wait, hold on. There's one that's got a, uh, let me do one more. Do you believe that Nate Diaz, excuse me, do you believe Nate Diaz that he hasn't been offered anyone other than Hamzat for a year now? Uh, I, I think they're, yeah, yes is the answer. Uh, I know the UFC is supposed to offer every fighter three fights a year. It's not how it works. It's a contract term and they have a number of fights per contract, but it's not three a year. That's, that's just an, that's an arbitrary way to look at it. Um, I can't help but wonder if the rules weren't possibly bent here. They tried to do this to him in 2013-2014 with Habib, and it didn't seem like the Leon matchup was Nate's idea either. It appears to me that the UFC wants to drag Nate far past his prime, punish him with the worst possible matchups, then release him with diminished star power so he can't make much money after the UFC. It comes across as spiteful as all hell. Right. Right. I I've said this before. This is not the first time they've done this. Like, Joe Silva, I bring it up all the time. I got made fun of on Twitter for it a little bit nicely, but I got made fun of for it. Dude, they did when Arlovsky was on the last fight of his contract and everyone knew he was going to affliction, they they tried to give him the next best thing, uh, what they thought was the guy who was a rising phenom at the time, and they buried him on the prelims just to fucking stick it to him. And it didn't work, but like they have like let's assume that they're doing that to Nate, right? Like let's make the argument let's 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 take it as a given that they're doing it to Nate. The question would be, is this the first time the UFC has done this? Not even close. <laughs> Not even close. Not even close. So, you know, why would this be out of character when organizationally we have seen this kind of behavior previously? People are acting like, well, why would they do that? This is, seems so spiteful. Dude, They've. this is not the first time. You ever seen that meme where it's like James Franco and he's got the, the, uh, the noose around his neck and he's like, first time? Seems like a lot of fans are like looking across and seeing James Franco. It ain't the first time. It ain't the first time. Um, they don't do it all the time necessarily, you know. Uh, I don't know that they get sideways with everyone, but it would, you know, Dana White can't stand Jake Paul and it would drive him fucking nuts for Nate Diaz to make a ton of money and be this huge fucking star and be everything he said he was that the UFC prevented him from being by going and doing that. It would drive Dana fucking crazy or UFC brass beyond him. I don't want to single him out necessarily. You know, the, the UFC, let's say, executive team, it would drive them fucking up the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to... Dude, I've said this before. The UFC, they're, they're a lot better these days about, uh, believe it or not, they're a lot better these days about, you know, under Joe Silva, it felt like they were very heavy-handed. They're a lot less heavy-handed uh, relative to that. And again, not exclusively, but generally. But, you know, they know one, they know one pitch, fastball, every time. Every time, dude. It's just, it's, it's, that's the game they play. They don't play it really any other way for the most part. That's just, that's, that's their DNA. They are outrageously aggressive competitors. And I think that that also explains a lot of their success. 
right? And I do mean that in a genuinely complimentary way. Like, I do believe that that is a big explanation for why they've had a lot of the success they've had. But a lot of it is also the reality that sometimes it gets ugly and ruthless. Welcome. That's what it looks like. All right. Let's take a look at the stuff you have paid for. I will try to answer these relatively quickly if I can. And then we will be on our way. Let's see. Uh-oh. Godzilla is back. Jesus, fuck. All right, there's a lot of these. All right, you mentioned your sports fandom often along with weightlifting, but what are your favorite athletes outside of stick and ball sports and weightlifting? Um, obviously, I cheer for all the guys on Real Madrid. Um, who are some of my favorite athletes? I, you know, I like Benzema, obviously. You're mentioning outside of weightlifting. Lasha Talahadze is the one I kind of follow most closely for all of sports. I don't follow many athletes outside of MMA. I don't follow many fighters on social media, but... Uh, even then I follow even fewer athletes, you know, I have, I don't, I'm not going to watch him this year, but I have a lot of respect for Terry McLaurin. I like, I like what he offers. He's very, very talented. Um, but Lash Telahadzi is the big one. That's the one that I really like. We are in the presence of historic greatness with him and a possible future of what someone can do in the sport that is like, you know, will go down in human history as some of the most relevant athletic, uh, in terms of strength sports, some of the most impressive feats of strength ever. He's the big one. But beyond that, you know, um, you know, I, 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 obviously Tyreek Hill is an amazing athlete, you know, and what he can do. And um, I grew up watching, we talked about on MK, Tom Glavin and John Smoltz and Greg Maddox and Steve Avery, those guys who were on the hill for the Braves in the, in the 90s and stuff like that. There's a lot of, Bo Jackson was a big guy, Michael Jordan was a big guy when I grew up. But in general, I, it's Lasha Tallahassee. It begins and ends with him. Is T City's overly sized mechanical uh, cut? Is T City's overly sized cup mechanical doping? I wouldn't call it mechanical doping. Mechanical doping is not when you take actual drugs, but like for example, if you had like a little engine in your bike that was hidden and it aided you in a race, that's mechanical doping, right? Uh, so the idea would be, does the cup being so big, if he wants to go for arm bars, does it work as a additionally sized? Does it create a, a, a much easier fulcrum by which to create the arm bar? Probably not. Probably not. Luke, long-time listener, first-time super chatter, okay? Again, a question about rank in BJJ. You always talk about years of experience grappling, but what you're coy about your rank. Right, what is my rank in striking? What is my rank in wrestling? I, I'm purposely coy about it because I find the discussion about it fucking hilarious, to be quite honest with you. I've said it a million times. I don't have any kind of rank in any martial art that would confer expertise. What I have is enough experience, by the way, not just grappling, like in training more generally, but... What I have is uh, a base of experience, roughly nine or so years, that gives me great ability relative to my peers to make more informed assessments about what's happening in fights, and to use that to make um, to to do a better job with with what I do. Uh, I merely wanted to train, yeah, a little bit of self defense, a little bit of get in shape, but I just kind of wanted to learn what the science of fighting actually looked like. I wasn't in it. I never competed, you know. I never boxed a pro, an amateur round in my life. I never wrestled a, a wrestling match ever in my life, other than like you know scrimmages in the gym or something like that. I don't have any of those things, and people seem to be very obsessed with what kind of like credentials on those terms I have. I don't have any, none, none that none that, that confer expertise. Uh, but what it does do is it gives me a base of knowledge that helps me watch tape and understand the fight game at least a little bit better, and then share I hope some of that knowledge with you. 
Luke, after Izzy fights Pereira, Pereira, would you agree that there's no clear next fighter or one or about to see who gets the next shot at 170? Usman has a list of challengers to defend after Leon. Um, a little bit, a little bit. It could get a little bit stale, but the divisions also move pretty quickly too. So, yes, it is not nearly as clear, uh, but at the same time, he has to defend it. They will put it up on regular rotation, and it'll just be what it will be. I agree, it's not as deep, hello, because he's quite dominant, but yes, it's not It's not the same. <clears throat> With Bilal, Brady, Shavkat, and Luke, etc., that said, when Hamzat... Well, the, well, there's also Hamzat who could potentially go to 185. When he beats Nate, should he go up to challenge for the middleweight belt first since he has as many UFC middleweight wins as Pereira, then 170? Wouldn't hate it. Wouldn't hate it. That guy's asking again. Jesus. If he's the UFC 185 champ, could it set up the first UFC middleweight super fight between two champs that Kamaru, Ali, and the fans all agree makes sense? If you say he needs one more fight at 185, then how about Brunson retire him after Nate? Then he gets the title shot. If he stays at 170, should Colby go up since he's not fighting? I don't know what the fuck to do about Colby. You can remove him from the conversation. But you're just asking, you know. Well, at 185, for, back up a step. At 170, there's plenty of challenges for him coming up. So this is very, this, this conversation is too premature for us to get there. Uh, let's see. Discussing Blades Aspinall, you mentioned a few Brits that could be Bisping 2.0, and Leon Edwards, Leon Edwards was a notable omission. Is there a reason for that, e.g. not being born in the UK? No. Or a slip of the mind? No. Well, the Brits will decide who is British. An American's not going to tell the Brits who isn't and isn't British. As far as I'm concerned, he's as British as anybody else. But, I no, it's not the omission. Um, it's the star potential. And Leon Edwards, I don't know exactly how popular he is in the UK. He's obviously a very deserving title contender. And he is a, you know, a genuine threat to Usman. I think Usman will win, but we, we shall see. But... There just appears to be a little bit more momentum from the market behind, obviously, Pimblet and a lot and more momentum behind Aspinall than there is for Edwards. Partly because Edwards has been here for a while and then he had a lot of time off and he didn't get the opportunities. And there's so he's had this sort of delay, this beginning and stopping and this starting and stopping and starting and stopping, which, you know, rather than the sort of crescendo, and that has hurt a little bit. So it's up to the Brits to decide who is the next big British star. It's not up to an American decide to decide that. You certainly could put him on the list. I can just tell you from this side of the pond, it feels like there's just a lot more enthusiasm about the potential for Aspinall than there is for, is for Edwards. However, you make a fair point. Should he also be included in that conversation? He probably should. Can you recall a men's pay-per-view main event that was seemingly as one-sided on paper as Nate versus Hamzat? Sure, Rich Franklin versus uh, Nate Quarry. I believe that was a. I believe that was a main event. I could be wrong about that. Let me double check that. Um, it was a title fight, to be sure. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. UFC fifty-six. Yeah. Yeah, Rich Franklin versus Nate Quarry. It ended at 234 of round number one. Love Nate. Tremendous guy. Tremendous asset to the sport. Uh, historical figure. That was a bad matchup for him. And and it was pretty clear to everyone going in that was a real bad matchup for him. Thoughts on Daniel Rodriguez now that he's cleared from injury. The dude has a ton of potential. A little bit older, but... Every time I thought, well, he's pretty good, but I don't know if he's going to make it to the next level, and then he always makes it to the next level. He's he's special. 
Uh, let's see. Seems like UFC matchmakers are playing executioners. If you had to drop 100 bucks on O'Malley or Diaz, who would it be and why? Candidly, I give O'Malley a better chance against Jan than I do against for Diaz against um, Hamzat. Your mileage may vary, but that's kind of how I see it. Uh, Gabe Green brought the fire to Gary at UFC 276. What would you like to see from Gifted Gabe for his UFC future? I haven't thought much about it. Um, candidly, I, I appreciate the donation, but I, I don't have a particularly informed answer for Gabe Green. Can you explain in layman's terms the WBA corruption? Yeah, basically it goes like this. There was a, there's a WBA and then there are these like, uh, you know, people who are working with fighters, lawyers, managers, whoever. And the idea would be there's this middle organization and the people who run this middle organization, which is supposed to be not be affiliated with the WBA, but the people who run it are like in some cases WBA employees or at least have a background with the WBA or related to the WBA are accepting money for like consulting and uh, and then their guy gets like boosted in the rankings. In short, the the claim would be the claim would be that the WBA, some of the people inside the WBA, would be alleged to have created an organization that is supposed to be distinct from the WBA that just provides consulting services, but it's just a place to launder money so that they can take money and then rank their guys more highly to give them more opportunity. That is the layman explanation for what has been alleged. I love UFC, but how they treat their stars is not something I appreciate. In uh, other big league sports, exit matches are celebrated. It's just not a good look on the hardest sport in the world. Again, guys, I've been watching this sport a long time, man. This is not... And let, me, let me just warn you right now. If nothing changes in the industry, this won't be the last time either. Not going to be the last time. It will happen again. Do fighters have a designated tape guy? Uh, oh, you mean like a guy who watches tape? No, other than their coaches, I have not heard of that, no. Uh, how do you and other analysts get pay-per-view fights? I pay for them and I get reimbursed. Can you get your hands on a UFC contract and get to the bottom of Dana's we have to, uh, to offer three fights per claims? I've talked to a couple of managers in the last few weeks. That's not how they explain it to me at all, that they have a time period and there's a number of fights for the time period, and then that's it. But like that it has to be three a year, I've not, I've not had one manager tell me that's true. With stance switching being more prevalent in MMA and boxing, what would you describe fits the mold of stance switcher that is a prospect? Top five. Uh, the best one in boxing would be Jerron Ennis Boots, who is, the, by the way, the mandatory in the IBF for Errol Spence. Like He might beat Errol Spence. Like Fucking Boots Ennis is a one of the most crazy talents I've ever seen. And in, in, uh, in MMA, how about Jack De La Maddalena? Great job at stance switching. Uses it. Doesn't just do it. Uses it cleverly. Also, Adrian Yanez. In boxing, one of the best weapons against the southpaw is a straight right hand, right? Why do we not see that utilized as much in MMA? Um, I think you do see it a fair amount. It's just about taking that alley step or using an alley jab to set it up. I, I just think striking in MMA has a long way to go. It's not, it's, in, in many ways, it's, it's very advanced, and in many ways, it's not. Um, and also, it's not boxing. Like, you're, you might have a great straight right hand. How often are you fighting southpaws? How long is the fight standing on its feet? You do see some of it if you watch enough of it, but in general, it's because the boxing's not as good. Tips on learning languages. Again, I don't have, I don't speak Spanish very well. <laughs> I get, I can get by on it. 
I use Rosetta Stone and I speak with my in-laws and my wife and I watch stuff in Spanish and I listen to stuff in Spanish and I read Spanish news and then I just try to do that. But if you, the point being is this, if you just try to speak Spanish or any language in comfortable scenarios, you won't get very good. You have to be in uncomfortable situations. You have to get people at Pen Paja, like I did, to laugh at you to get better. It's just the reality. Okay, someone's asking about women's asses. I'm not going to do that. Who's next for Tapuria? Anyone who's closely ranked with him. I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these guys that thinks it has to be, he has to jump the queue. He's obviously extremely talented, but anybody around his relative ranking position is totally fine for me. And then last but not least, do you think more ex-UFC fighters will go the smoke path and speak out against UFC practices? Dude, a lot of ex-UFC fighters do that. He is hardly the first one. Uh, and the answer is probably yes. I do think that as, for as much Stockholm Syndrome as you see among fighters who are signed to various promotions, in this case UFC, you are also seeing a greater awareness of the value that they generate now that the UFC is making so much money and that their window gets... People are always like, oh, it's the guys who get cut. It's the ones who lose. Yeah, it's the ones who... All these guys think they're going to win the lottery. All of them. All these guys think they're going to win the lottery, that they're going to be the one to push through. They're going to be the one that leaves their peers behind. And sometimes they're right. But a lot of times they're not. A lot of times they are not. And the reality is, is that when it finally becomes undeniable to them that all the things that they had believed are no, or many of the things anyway, that they had believed are not exactly true and that they've lost and then they get cut and this is not the future that they had envisioned for themselves, then they're like, oh shit, all those warnings they were right. Like, they do make sense. People, like, act like it's, oh, it's it's only losers who do it. Well, dude, there's there's not, like, the, the amount of people who make a lot of money in UFC, there's not a whole lot of them. You're going to get much more of one end of that. And it's the ones who have been forced to encounter that difficult reality that are are more willing to embrace the truth of it. So, you know, when people bash Lewis Smoka for getting cut, it's like, first of all, Lewis Smoka is a very good fighter. I hope everyone understands that. And number two, he's had difficult fights, and he has lost many of them. Uh, he also won some good ones, too, to be very fair to him. But the, but the truth is, it's, it's reality has to crash on. These guys, like you have to understand, to be a high-level fighter, which Lewis Smoka is, to be a high-level fighter, you have to put yourself in a competitive mind frame where you believe you can do extraordinary things. And sometimes they can, to be very clear. But when... To get to unbrainwash yourself, reality has to crash on top of you a little bit. And so folks are like, oh, what's the ones who lose? Yeah, those are the ones that have been more, that can't be, that they, the, the brainwashing that they've done to themselves to win. And I'm not saying brainwashing in a bad way. Like you, you kind of have to do that as like an occupational necessity to win. The point I'm trying to make is when that train comes to a stop and it doesn't go any further, then they have, like, you see, like, Tony Ferguson kind of, like, you know, giving oxygen to more of this stuff, too. Because he has to, he has to, he has to, he has to now grapple with that reality a little bit. And, like, you know, how many big fights does he have left? How many big fights does Nate have left? Nate has, obviously, the greatest potential for big fights. But even then, how many does he have left? How many big fights can they actually make? Not many. Not many. And I think he's understood the truth of what the industry is for much longer than other folks. And listen, he's probably made mistakes and there's a lot of criticisms you can make of him. And if you talk to UFC brass, you might hear some. Fair enough. There are two sides to every story. But, but, you know, I, I really detest 
when fans go after these guys for losing and like, oh, that's why you want to do it because you're a fucking loser and you can't get ahead. No, it's because they are the ones who are forced to reconcile the reality of um, what the industry really does and and what the truth of it actually is and what their value. Uh, and like you know, if you, if your window for actually making money has now not so much for for Lewis Smoke, I think he can make some money, but you know when your window for big checks has actually closed, what that actually means about the industry? Those are the ones that those are the guys that have been forced to accept some of that, and that's why they're so outspoken. All right, I have got to get out of here. I've got a meeting that I've got to attend. I appreciate everyone who has tuned in today. Um, Othello was on vacation, but he's going to put chapters in here, and. Uh, Yes, I have to get everything out of my office and bring it back. So my hope is that next week, fingers crossed, knock on wood, my hope is that next week uh, technical difficulties will kick back into gear. That is my hope. We'll see how it goes. But I appreciate everyone tuning in. Thank you so much. This will be up on podcast by the end of tonight. And until next time, bitches, thank you for watching. Stay frosty.